Welcome to the perfume room. My scent of the day today is 16A Orchard from Aetis de Venustis, which was actually a fragrance I had initially tried in store and forgot that I had a sample of. And I have that sample because when I recorded the episode with Liz Renstrom, AKA your favorite fragrance nostalgia queen, bass note bitch, she had brought samples of some of her favorites and 16A Orchard was among them. 16A is lovely. It is such a beautiful, refreshing scent, and it opens with this zesty, piquant vibe, almost like a little ginger zinger that somehow feels crisp, but simultaneously soft. And then as it evolves, you really get to the citrus iris heart. Bergamot, lemon, iris, and you know what it feels like? It feels like a word that I have not said on the podcast in a while chalky. It is a chalky lemony scent, dare I say lemon Pez candy, which if you know anything about my taste, you know I love. As an iris lover, give me chalky Pez perfume or give me death. This scent is lovely and fresh and if you like a zesty skin scent a la Glossier U or Penhaligon's Juniper Sling, you must try this one. You will love. And on a fun little side note, this scent is named after the address of the Aetis de Venustas storefront on the Lower East Side. So not only is Aetis de Venustas a fragrance line, it is, as I mentioned, also a store. And that store is one that has what we call table service only, AKA, in order to smell the fragrances, you have to know their name, point them out, and then and only then will the person working behind the counter grab it and spray it for you versus the more typical experience of perusing and exploring independently and or with occasional help. Now, the employees that I've encountered at Aetis de just are lovely. The service is great. And yet still, there is something about the table service experience that stresses me the F out. I have a fragrance podcast. If there is anyone in this world who should be comfortable with table service in a niche fragrance store, it me. I could have a list of everything I want to smell. I could have had the perfumer or brand owner as a guest on this podcast, but someone says those dreaded four words, can I help you? And I simply shrivel and shrink like me. Oh no, I'm just a mouse. Please. No. Like, does this happen to anybody else? Truly? What is the matter with me? Put me on stage in front of a thousand people unprompted. I thrive. Stick me in a store where I simply need to ask for what I want. I choke. I simply cannot. Sorry, sir, but the help I need, you cannot provide. Now, all this to say, if I am immediately vibing with the employee and it feels like an instant friendship, different story. I will be in that store for hours. I will linger. You will have to kick me out. But anything less than that feeling, and I am under duress. Anyway, I digress. Enough about me. Here is what you really need to know about 16A Orchard. It was created by today's guest, who truly needs no introduction, but you know I'm giving him one. Okay. Do you guys remember back in June when I gave my recap of attending the Fragrance Foundation Awards and I told you that my personal highlight of the evening was finding a certain someone on the terrace and introducing myself? Yeah, okay. Well, that certain someone happened to be the one, the only Frank Vocal. 
aka the person behind so many cult favorite scents that I would argue have shifted and shaped the fragrance industry as we know it. As a principal perfumer at Furminish, Frank has created Santal 33, Glossier U, Te Noir 29, Axe, Killian Roses on Ice, Sarah Jessica Parker Covet. I could go on. He's also done so many amazing niche fragrances, Boy Smells, Marble Fruit, the newest one in his collection, MCM Ultra, and as I just mentioned, Adis Divinustas 16A Orchard. Now, the second time I met him was at an MCM event, and we got into this amazing discussion about the legacy and impact that Axe has had on the fragrance industry, how it was initially inspired by fine fragrance, but then also inspired fine fragrance, and how it was the gateway to so many people's interest in perfume. He has already blessed our noses, and I knew he needed to bless our ears as well. In today's conversation, we discuss the cultural marketing shift and what people are looking for in fragrance today versus a decade ago versus two decades ago, what it takes to create a new trend, the aftermath of creating said trend, Frank's path to perfume, his signature scent profile, how he deals with competition, and what it is like to exist in the world as a perfumer smelling everyday smells. I'm calling it now. This episode is required listening. It is my true pleasure to bring you Frank Vocal. Frank, welcome to the perfume room. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Emma. Thank you for having me. And the sun is shining, so I'm happy. Yes, we were just saying we've had like four or five days of gray weather. The sun came out for us. It's amazing. I always start the podcast by asking, what are you currently wearing, if any fragrance? Well, you know, since I'm at work today, so mm-hmm. I'm not wearing anything. Okay. Um, so I leave that out for the weekend, you know, always trying things I'm working on presently. And uh, other than that, you know, I got my favorites. You know, there's like uh, some woody fragrances, uh, depending on the season, depending on the moment. But um, yeah, right now I'm wearing nothing. Would you say woody is kind of your, if you had to give yourself a sort of signature profile, is that where you... Tend to gravitate? Um, yes. I mean, I love many other things as well, but I do have to say I have a tendency to put a little bit of wood everywhere. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm working on a floral or a gourmand or a fruity, um, there are always going to be some wood somewhere. I would say that, yes. So this is actually one of my future questions, but would you say that's sort of like the Frank Vogel signature, like a hint of wood? Um, yes, hint of wood, a hint of musk, um, definitely something a little bit sensual, skin-like in the back, um, definitely, yes, yeah. I, you know, as someone who wears a lot of your fragrances, it checks out. We were talking about this earlier, about controversial opinions. Do you have any fragrance hot takes or controversial opinions that people might not necessarily agree with you about? I'm not sure it's necessarily something controversial, but it's more a belief that I think I've been having for many, many years. Um, It's actually about the role of fragrance, which, um, you know, when you look at some of our clients, uh, the way they market fragrance or the the, the, really the the broad uh, way fragrance were marketed so far are really, you know, there's a lot of seduction involved and a lot of... um, you know, women wearing fragrance mm-hmm. to smell good for the man or whoever they want to seduce. Um, and then the other way around, you know, men that wearing fragrance mm-hmm. to, um, you know, smell good. 
when they go out. And then even we have done studies where we found out that people basically after they get married, they kind of stop wearing frames because they feel they don't need any more. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, They're like, I'm comfortable now. Yes, wow. You know, so I always question all of that because I really believe that frames are for yourself primarily and, mm -hmm. and and I think that's why people really wear fragrance. I'm not sure everybody's on board with that yet, but I think they will soon. Mm. We're going to get back to that idea later because I have a lot that I want to know. Mm -hmm. But first, take me back to the beginnings. When did you know that you wanted to be a perfumer? Um, I would say there was probably the moment there that I found out that that metier actually exists. Mm -hmm. And that was, I want to say, during my high school years, living in Paris, mm -hmm. um, getting interested into fragrance, and then having an interview with the director of the Izipka, which was a French mm -hmm. perfumery school, and he basically explained me the different... Um, Metiers in in that industry, in the perfume industry, and then when he told me that there's actually people creating fragrance, because I have to admit I was one of those that thought that Calvin Klein uh, creates his own fragrances, Why, you know, yeah. back then. Like his name's on it. Exactly, yeah. you know. So I didn't know there were people behind the scenes who do this. Um, and well, the moment I found out, I said, okay, that's what I want to do. Mm. And what were you wearing as a consumer prior to this? Uh, at that time, mm -hmm. oh. I mean, crazy fragrance that I would not be able to wear today. Um, like Kouros, Yves Saint Laurent, those were the, the fragrance of the 80s, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Paco Rabanne, uh, Azaro, the mm -hmm. first man. So those very big, bold, fougere uh, fragrances uh, that, yeah. So I'm curious, too, when you decided to become a perfumer, like, did you understand the range? Like, were you like, oh, I'm going to create fougeres? Or did you understand that you'd also be creating, like, women's perfumes? Was there something that was like, this is what I want to learn how to create? Not really. I mean, I have to say the idea was definitely to go into the fine fragrance world. So, the you know, to work on colognes, not necessarily so much. I wasn't so much interested in, you know, creating detergent fragrance and, and soaps, et cetera, which is another whole field that's like super interesting, but probably mm -hmm. a little bit more technical. So I was really definitely imagining creating fragrance for men, women, and whoever loves fragrance. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then of course I had no clue that there's a sheep and a fougere right. and a woody and an ambery fragrance. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, definitely I knew nothing about that. So what were the steps that you took after you decided this is what you wanted to do, how did you become a perfumer? They were very hard steps, actually, yeah. to tell you the truth, because uh, um, the director back then at, from the school, from the Zipka, told me that I should go back and do something like an equivalent of a bachelor in chemistry. Mm -hmm. And uh, chemistry was one of those courses and classes in, in school that I really hated. So Same. it was very <laughs> tough to go back uh, um, to to study uh, chemistry to the point that really, um, you know, when I had one of my final exams and the professor basically was getting ready to fail me in that exam, told me, you know, you should really consider, you know, moving out of chemistry and doing something else. And uh, I said, you know, don't worry if I past this, you will never see me again. I will promise you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I do not want to be a chemist. I want to be a perfumer. Right. 
And, um, you know, I just need this diploma and um, then you will never hear and see me again, you know. And with that, he gave you a great grade and said, okay. It worked. It worked. It worked. How much chemistry is involved in in being a perfumer on a day-to-day? Well, it's, it's a very good question because, you know, as I mentioned before, there's a whole field in perfumery that is much more technical. So when you work on shampoos, I mean, imagine uh, fragrancing a bleach fragrance, uh, right. things like that. So mm-hmm. you better be very comfortable with chemistry and mm-hmm. understand how, you know, all these ingredients that we use every day, how they react in, in a certain, you know, in ammonia or in bleach or right. anything like that. So there, the chemistry, I would say, is very useful. In fine fragrance, it is useful, but if if you're not an expert, you still, I think, can be a, a great perfumer. Right. You bring up a really interesting point because one of the backlashes that I see on different perfumes, maybe on social media or whatever, is people will say, this reminds me of, like, uh, bug spray. This smells like cleaning product. This smells like this or whatever. But those are all everyday household products that have scents that were intentionally created by perfumers, right? So, Correct. So the same perfumer who created a, a, a bug spray or something that you might clean your shower with could have also, I mean, I don't know if there's crossover like that, but could have also created a fine fragrance, potentially. Typically, Typically not. No? Okay. Typically not. Right. Because um, there's not that many of us, you know, yeah. there's only, I don't know, roughly 500 or so mm-hmm. perfumers in the world, mm-hmm. but we do actually specialize quite a bit. Right. I mean, you will always have, let's say, probably in smaller companies um, that don't have, you know, very large, um, let's say, uh, differentiated segments or categories mm-hmm. within because they're just a small, small player in the mm-hmm. industry. Um, but all the big players like Firminish or, or others we really have uh, specialized people for every area, you know. So right. you would have actually within the consumer fragrance segment, you would have people that are more specialized in shower gel versus detergent mm-hmm. or or uh, dishwashing uh, liquids or cat litter or um, or bug sprays, you know. Yeah. But uh, typically fine fragrance perfumers like myself, we would not necessarily get into any territory that's that's very technical because mm-hmm. that's really then beyond our expertise. And uh, a lot of times we team up with our colleagues that mm-hmm. are experts. So if I had to work on a soap, you know, I would, you know, contact one of my colleagues that's, who is a real expert in, in soaps and uh, we would collaborate. Mm. But still, I just think it's, I think there's something there about the fact that so many of these products that we touch and smell every day, whether they are a very beautiful, fine fragrance that was like a birthday gift or the the cleaner that you're using in your house, mm-hmm. there was someone who was behind the scent of that fragrance. And I think there's something, I don't know, it's something I think about from time to time. And, and it is very important. And I can tell you that, I mean, I very carefully choose, actually, it's not my wife, it's me who chooses the, mm-hmm. the fabric softener we're using right. at home, because mm-hmm. if it's the wrong one, I'm, I have a problem. Right. Well, okay, so you are at Firminish, you've been at Firminish for some time, but I know you began your career at what is now Simrise. So how is it, working at different fragrance houses, how much does that impact the type of scents that you create? If, if you today were at a different house, do you think your the scents would be different, or? Um... Interesting question. I I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so because I I believe that 
as a perfumer, and that's probably the part that I like really very much about it, is you have a lot of freedom. And basically, when you create fragrances and you work on projects, you will always do it your way, which mm -hmm. means my way. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I succeed because it matches whatever my client was looking for, and sometimes it doesn't. But I would say wherever I am, whether it's at any other fragrance house or at Firminish, I think I will always do create fragrances my way based on, on my, my personal taste. And um, then the only difference you will have is, and uh, that's where you're, you're probably right, is that the ingredients that I'm using at Firminish will not be the same as somewhere else. So, you know, right. we have captive ingredients. Mm -hmm. Um, particularly and, and specialties that others don't have access to. Mm -hmm. And then maybe other houses have other specialties that we don't have access to. But definitely your, your style is also defined by the ingredients you're using. Mm. So if, if you had to say, obviously we've talked about the Frank Vogel signature and we'll get into that. If What is the, with that said, with the certain molecules, what would you say is the Furmanish signature or the thing that is really unique to Furmanish? Um I think we're definitely very famous for certain musk products mm -hmm. that we have, you know, musk molecules, um, anything in the world of Ambrox, mm -hmm. Cedar Locks, you know, those mm -hmm. ambergris type of notes uh, we're famous for. But we also have today a, a very broad range of, of natural extracts, you mm -hmm. know, that we... Um, develop with our partners of Naturals Together. So um, we have a very complete range, but uh, definitely I would say those um, captive molecules and other captive ingredients, that's I think what, what people know us for. And when we have sometimes people coming from the outside, actually I was smelling with somebody that re uh, joined us recently and she was making a comment it's like oh this smells so firminish you know mm -hmm. and it is uh, and i i think that exists because yeah. i myself knew at some point before i joined firminish um that you know there was a style which right. was really related to those uh, captive ingredients right. that um, that was very particular to us mm. i i agree with that um, I'm curious too, because we were talking about, you know, wherever you go, you always have your signature, your style mm -hmm. and your point of view. I think a lot of times people think that when you become a perfumer, you can kind of just sort of like march to the beat of your own drum, design at your leisure, et cetera, et cetera. And you have lots of brands that you're creating for. What are some of the misconceptions that come with um, the career of being a perfumer? Yeah. Okay. Definitely, I think there's a lot of people that think that we living the most glamorous artist life that's out mm -hmm. there, and mm -hmm. we are not. Okay. <laughs> because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a business mm -hmm. at the same time. You know, of course, there's there's art to it, there's creativity to it. I definitely, you need to have a lot of passion, but it's also a very competitive mm -hmm. uh, industry. So, which means that not only within Firminish, we will work on um, the same project with several perfumers. Mm -hmm. um, and we are basically already competing internally because mm -hmm. um, the client eventually will just choose maybe one or two fragrances, and then you will have maybe 10 Firminish perfumers working on a project. Right. So it's that's already the first competition happening there. And then, of course, we compete with other fragrance houses. So it's it's a very competitive um, industry. 
So you need to have, um, you know, you need to have enough sensitivity to create beautiful frames, but you also have to have enough thick skin, I would say, to um, to deal with this very competitive environment. Definitely. And and when you have a brand brief that maybe doesn't, I'm sure this happens often, but you're often not creating with you as the consumer in mind. How do you sort of wrap your head around each brand's brief and understand what their point of view would be in a perfume? I, I would say that is actually one of the, the key things to, to, to successfully create a fragrance for a brand is to really wrap your head around the brand and, and the consumer. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that when we create and um, our clients launch a fragrance that stands for a brand that the consumer has an expectation. So it's almost a promise, which means whether you work for uh, Gucci or Marc Jacobs or Bath and Body Works mm-hmm. or Axe or whoever it is, or Glossier, that um, there, there are values that stand behind those brands. And um, there are certain, there's a DNA, I think, to every brand, I would say, visually, but then when they do fragrance also effectively. So you have to really make sure you, first of all, you understand well what it means Mm -hmm. and that you can sort of capture that still creating newness and Mm -hmm. innovate, but still having, you know, those core values, whether they are sophistication, luxury, or something very casual, or Mm -hmm. whether it's clean notes, et cetera, that you capture that in your fragrance. Yeah. And I think in in some ways you are sort of setting the standard of what that DNA is like with Glossier, for example, you is their first and only fragrance that ex- unless there's something else in the works that I don't know about. But you is the fragrance that's out right now. And obviously you had to interpret what their brand DNA was unscented and create a scent for that. So I'm just, I guess I'm just curious if there's nothing that exists prior that is scented, how do you sort of say like, this is what the, this is what the Glossier ethos is? Yeah. I mean, good point. And I think uh, those are sometimes I would say the most challenging, Mm -hmm. but also the most interesting projects, Mm -hmm. because you're basically starting from a blank page and you sort of have to define what that stands for. So you're mentioning Glossier U, which is a fragrance created uh, with uh, Dora Bagrish Mm -hmm. and my colleague in Paris. So it's a collaboration actually. The starting point came from from her and then I I helped her to, um, you know, finish it. And um, so... It was an interesting uh, approach because Emily Weiss was herself very involved in the in the development. She came to our labs and uh, smelled ingredients, and so there was a very personal approach uh, mm-hmm. about this. Um, and uh, so we actually started out really finding, trying to find out what what her what she was looking for because mm-hmm. she did have something in mind that I think was was quite clear. And um, we had to sort of find out also mm-hmm. because it was the first time working with her. So mm-hmm. that's another thing, you know, when you work uh, with a new brand and then you work with a new a person you haven't met, um, you have to also then try to figure out what, what, what are their likes and, mm-hmm. and, and what is their vision and then sort of match their vision with yours. Mm-hmm. And um, also the way the fragrance was marketed, I think, was a very interesting and very unique. And it was really based, I think, also on the fact that 
we really very firmly believe that the fragrance is for yourself. And I think she mm-hmm. she um, she really keyed into that and thought it was really interesting. And um, yeah, so that's how we ended up there. Yeah, I mean, I I personally um, was completely sold on Glossier U when it first came out, and I loved this idea of like, well, these are the ingredients, but the final ingredient is you and how your skin sort of reacts with this scent. And something that I think is really interesting that you were touching on earlier is just your controversial opinion, how marketing has changed or how um, you don't necessarily agree with people who are wearing fragrances to attract another and that it really should be for you. And I'm curious how you've seen this evolution of marketing because you also worked, speaking of competitive briefs, you worked on Axe Mm -hmm. and that marketing was very much, I mean, I can remember it like get the girl, you know? So what do you think made Axe, now we're going to Axe, but we're going to come back to Glossier U. What do you think made Axe, Axe and what was it like to work on that brief? I mean... I have to say, um, it, it's not like the core of fine fragrance, mm-hmm. first of all, because the Axe body spray, is, it's, it's a hybrid. It's a, so it's actually somewhere between a deodorant and, and a body spray or a mist, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, so there was always this dual role of being a deodorant, but also to be fragrance, because mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely also because of the, the, the cost um, of the product, it was an entry into fragrance for for young uh, teenagers, let's say. And um, so it was really thrilling in the sense that the reach that you have when you create a fragrance for Axe is gigantic. It's Mm -hmm. it's global. And and, uh, things have changed a little bit in the meantime. But uh, definitely, if you would, they would launch these huge global variants, Mm -hmm. huge amount of business, by the way, and uh, you had a reach where you basically was were touching uh, every young kid, um, whether it's in Argentina, in Mexico, in Germany, in in France, in uh, in uh, China, or mm-hmm. or Japan, or India, mm-hmm. uh, Africa. So to have that type of reach and to you, to know that your fragrance is basically being worn and appreciated by all these people around the world. There's something very, very special about that. Right. Uh, But then, yes, I mean, back then, um, when I started working on that, my son was a teenager uh, himself, and uh, so he could um, definitely help me also in the development, Mm -hmm. So, which was really interesting. Um, but I, I think also the that generation of teenagers has changed. Right. Because I now have a 17-year-old, while my oldest one is almost 30. Mm-hmm. Um, You've and, got a Gen uh, Z and a millennial in the same exactly, house. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's really interesting. And I think they are very, very different. Mm-hmm. And um, so what they're looking for is... Not so much. I'm not saying they're not interested in girls at all, uh, the young boys, but they're they have a completely different social embedment. I would say, you know, mm-hmm. they 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 are socially very different. So and and they're really looking to take care of themselves primarily, mm-hmm. and not so much um, going out there to get. Um, to hook the girls, you know, right. it's, it's that, that I feel like this, I'm not saying it doesn't exist anymore, right. but definitely there's a big shift, right. big shift. Right. 
No, I mean, it's interesting because Axe came out at a time and it was a blockbuster and it, that was totally the marketing and Glossier U came out at a time when people were looking for like, well, I want to wear something for myself and they're both such different concepts. But I think it speaks volumes to who the consumer was at that specific time. Exactly, exactly. So, and that's also interesting for us and for me. I mean, it's been almost 30 years that I'm doing this to, to mm -hmm. see how trends change. Mm -hmm to see how consumers change mm -hmm. and um, to basically also in terms of fragrance to adapt to that and, and create scents that will respond to what, what people are looking for today versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Are you loving today's episode? It is me bringing you a quick announcement, which is that October Smell Club tickets are now on sale. I repeat, October Smell Club tickets are now on sale. And now if you have been living under a rock, one, how witchy of you, and two, let me catch you up. The theme for the October Smell Club is, drumroll please, witchy scents. And I know that that's very subjective and probably means something different to everyone. And in this pack, I tried to make sure that whatever witchy means to you, yes, you, your perfect scent is in there. Sessions will be taking place on Sunday, October 23rd, Wednesday, October 26th, and Thursday, October 27th. And as I am recording this on the Monday before this episode airs, one of the sessions is already sold out. The link to register is in my Instagram bio. If you are not following the Instagram, why not? The Instagram account is Perfume Room Pod, and it has both the registration link as well as the link to purchase the sample pack. As always, the registration and sample pack are sold separately. The total cost is $35. I hope to see you there. I don't want to take a moment more of your time. Let's get back to Frank. Sitting across from you in this room, I think I have to at least acknowledge that you've set so many of the fragrance trends that people follow. And I specifically going back to, I mean, I can think about it with Axe. I can think about it with Santal 33. I can think about it with Glossier U. These were all scents that when they came out, the consumer hadn't really smelled anything like them, or at least not in the same marketplace. And then it just set the standard of like, so many things now get compared to all three of those fragrances that I just mentioned. And I even remember when I first tried Glossier U, I had not tried anything that smelled like it. And since, because of its popularity, there have been so many sort of like musky, peppery, iris type of scents that have followed suit. I mean, Santal 33 launched a wave of sandalwood fragrances. And I think we can attribute it to all of these scents that you've created. Yeah, I mean, for sure, I'm, I'm not the only one setting trends, but for sure it's been nice to see that, you know, there's a following. Because mm -hmm. I do believe um, that in the first place you, you have to stand out and, mm -hmm. and you have to, um, let's say, overcome any fears you could have on really going out there. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting just to give you an idea as, as a perfumer, I do believe that it's probably similar to, to, to painters in a way, you know, because when you look at, uh, when you follow the, the, the work of painters when they start in their career mm -hmm. and they do their first experiments to the point where they end their career, and you see a lot of times, you see, um, you know, a very... Um, very broad, generic influences from other painters right. and, and, and what's happening at that time where they were active. 
Um, and then eventually they developed their own style, you know, like the, the Gauguin's and, uh, uh, and the Picasso's, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the beginning, they were sort of exploring. Right. And I feel as a perfumer, it's it's a very similar thing, which means you you start out looking um, looking for you know what people do, uh, what's successful, what works, what doesn't work, and then eventually um, you are able to let's say develop products that get a little bit of traction and they they somewhat succeed. And that gives you confidence. And I think that's something that's very important as a perfumer to have that confidence and to overcome the fear of exploring territories that haven't been explored, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's how you can really um, get to the point where you, you create products that uh, can set a trend mm-hmm. um, if you overcome those fears and you have the confidence. And also, very important, you need a client that, um, that is willing to go with you. Right. that path because right. I have to say I mean as a perfumer we we're, we're never alone in the room um, you need a brand that is willing to to go that path and sometimes mm-hmm. pushes you to go there so um, if you have a perfumer and a brand that's willing to explore I think that's how you can set trends definitely and I, I'm curious too because I'm sure or maybe I'm speaking for you but I don't know if you've had the experience of after creating something that is so successful having another brand being like we would like you to give us our glossier you or our axe or our santal and how do you handle um, people loving something you made so much that they want their own iteration of it versus like creating something new yeah I mean it's a, it's a good question and uh you know it definitely I can tell you that it does happen on a regular basis mm-hmm. um but of course we are first of all very loyal to our clients right and to the brands that we work with and uh there's certainly a sensitivity to that in the sense that you know the fragrance we create for one brand will be exclusive for one brand. Mm-hmm. Only, and then of course there's a a gray zone on where you can capture a feeling of something and maybe reinterpret it. And uh, because I think it's also, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned Santal or Glossier, it's almost like a certain emotional state, you know. Mm -hmm. So you can capture that in different ways. Right. uh, That not necessarily step on somebody else's toes, but to just, um, let's say, reinvent that same feel mm-hmm. in a different way. But for sure, I mean, I'm, I'm extra careful not to um, have any overlap uh, um, with the work I create for one client and right. not repudi- reproducing for another. Yeah, I, I think another byproduct of creating something that is so successful too is that sometimes there gets consumer fatigue because so many brands hop on the bandwagon. And so it's like if you go back to the original, it was revolutionary. But then you see that every single fragrance house was like, well, this is how we react to this. This is our answer to this. And I don't know if that's something that as a perfumer you've you've seen happen or... Um, about. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. And I mean, it's some of my fragrance, but I mean, just think about something like uh, CK1 or, mm-hmm. or Light Blue. I right. mean, those were also big, iconic fragrances um, that were sort of uh, explored by other brands, you know, that sort of set a trend. I mean, uh, 
think about Angel too with the, right. the gourmand, you know. Right. And um, I'm not saying that today every gourmand fragrance is a, is a, a little grandchild of Angel, but for sure um, there are others that set trends. And, and I think it's a good thing because mm-hmm. basically there a lot of times they, they really go out there in, in a in an, I would say, uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. And um, suddenly people discover them. And a lot of times also these fragrances, they grew very slowly, mm-hmm. which means they were not necessarily launched in a very large distribution, but mm-hmm. they just got a following for for what they are, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and um, I always believe that... Um, for as a perfumer, but also as a, as a brand, it's very wise to always give consumers options mm-hmm. because I believe that their mind is, first of all, they're very smart. Uh, they're very educated also these days. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you never know whether they will like something until you give it to them, right. you know? Right. So give them newness, give them a point of difference and explore because, um, you know, you might discover the next big thing on uh, in our industry right what do you think now is the next big thing um i think one thing that's happening right now which i find really interesting and also because i i do a lot of work in niche brands um of course i you know i i sort of cover the whole spectrum in my work but um you know the niche brands they are mostly gender fluid or you know now we like the to use the word gender full mm-hmm. but let's put it like that when you create uh, for these brands mostly niche indie brands um, gender doesn't really basically we never really talk about gender you mm-hmm. know because mm-hmm. the idea is not to you know get into the mating game or you know have a fragrance that smells very masculine or very feminine or anything like that so i do think that there's definitely uh, a trend for that to grow broader mm-hmm. which means also evolving into the niche uh, into the the prestige market or other markets but definitely i think um, the role of fragrance is shifting even more and uh, meaning that we don't necessarily always need to create fragrances that reinforce femininity or masculinity right. or anything like that. Definitely. So when you're creating, what is the? Do you have a creative process? Is there a, like? Do you play music? Is there like a? Is there like a thing that you do to like get in the zone or to get attached to like a get in the mind of a brand or anything like that? Good question. I have to say it's it's kind of tough as, as a perfumer because we always create in, in, in you know, in, on, a, on a certain schedule, actually, you mm-hmm. know. So just going back, there, there is still a little bit of glamour in our lives, but mm-hmm. um, there's always a, a, a schedule because, you know, there's timelines that, that mm-hmm. you have to respect. And um, so when you get briefed on a project, sometimes you have a week, sometimes you have six weeks, sometimes... Uh, you have uh, two weeks, you know, so you, you have to come up with an idea mm-hmm. in a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So that's good and bad. It's good, I think, to be pushed and to have some a little bit of pressure there mm-hmm. to, to get you going. I mm-hmm. think that's never a bad thing. 
but at the same time, it also happens that your your inspiration at at, at a certain moment uh, in your your life is not there, mm-hmm. and 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 that's, so you still have to do something, right. you know, right. uh, because nobody wait will wait for you to 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 have this huge inspiration and this sparking idea coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, there can be ways to to trigger that, uh, which yes is definitely uh, some level of immersion. You know what I really try to do when I'm I'm having a hard time to finding an idea for something for a brand for a new project. I really try to get into it in the sense to really look what they stand for, look at uh, visuals. I'm certain is personally I'm I'm quite influenced by visual effects. You know, mm-hmm. so colors and and mm-hmm. shapes and textures, etc. So. To find to find an angle, actually, that's really what I'm always looking for when I start creating a fragrance. To find an angle that that creates a link to a brand that that makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. and and that may be a point of difference, and uh, that really uh, sort of you know um, helps to to create some level of coherence between right. other products that that brand stands for. Right. Well, a recent example that I can think of with that would be MCM um, Ultra, which mm-hmm. you just launched. And that is so uniquely tied to the iconic Stark backpack. How do you translate, uh, you know, like how in your mind did you take the look and feel of the bags and the backpack and say, this is a tuberose, this is a, an apricot? Like, how do you translate that? Yeah. Um well, I would say it's not that literal. Yeah. But definitely that was a very interesting project and I love to work on it because there's there's a whole history behind, you know. MCM mm-hmm. is first of all the the first perfumer I was working with uh, that was my my mentor mm-hmm. uh, created a lot of their fragrances mm-hmm. back then. Wow. And um, so I was even invited to uh, a launch. He invited me to go to Munich, where the the headquarters was of that brand. And mm-hmm. and see, you know, I'm German, and and it was a huge thing in Germany, MCM, right. uh, uh, many years ago. And then it sort of evolved into a huge global brand today. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the M- MCM Ultra, of course, there was a backpack, which is super cool and very signature mm-hmm. and very fun. And uh, for the MCM Ultra, they were looking also for for uh, like a glamorous aspect of that brand. Mm-hmm. So this glamour, the gold and the shine and the glow, and you see it in the ads. I mean, that's kind of what I was trying. So when you talk about the tuberose mm-hmm. and some of these notes, that's that's kind of where where those came in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like okay, what does glamour in in a very modern, uh, young, fun way smell like? And that those were kind of the the triggers for that fragrance. Yeah, I love just hearing how, just talking to someone as brilliant as yourself and how you interpret the idea of glamour into notes. Um, Of all these fragrances that you've created, and I love that personal um, German tie with MCM as well, is there one that feels most personal to you? Um, I don't know, because, you know, we were just speaking of, fragrances that are um you know like our children and, mm-hmm. and and we love all of them and you know sometimes our children try to get us to say that 
they are the favorite, you know. But there's always a favorite. Of course. Right? I mean, I clearly have a favorite daughter because I only have one, but okay. she's clearly yeah. my favorite daughter. If you're listening to and, this. And <laughs> uh, my two boys are my two favorite boys. Um, <laughs> but um, the, I think maybe uh, one that was kind of special and, and very personal was uh, one of my first fine fragrance, which was the Thierry fragrance. Mm. So the Thierry fragrance, it's, um, you know, it's the um, um, iconic flower. It's a type of gardenia from, from French Polynesia, mm -hmm. from Tahiti, where my wife is from. And uh, so that was kind of my first breakthrough in fine fragrance um, as a young perfumer. And I developed that for Sylvie de Chantecaille, mm -hmm. um, who has an amazing, uh, very high-end um skin product brand mm -hmm. and then she actually started out with uh, those fragrances and I was telling her the story about Tahiti and my wife and uh, how I've always wanted to create a fragrance based on Tiare but in a very sophisticated elegant way so I think there was a very personal story there because uh, it was everything that my wife stands for and my first exposure to to French Polynesia and and, and the Tiare flower so that was definitely, uh, I would say, yeah, probably one of the most personal fragrances. Yeah. Was it inspired by um, your own experiences visiting Polynesia? Yeah, absolutely. And and when you go there, it's really interesting because uh, when you get off the plane, um, you 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 know they don't have these uh, runways, so you go actually out the door of the plane, walk down the steps, so you mm -hmm. get immersed with this uh, humidity. And then the next thing you will experience is that um, you'll be given a little tiare flower mm. um, at the airport wow. by the airport personnel. And uh, you stick that behind your ear. Uh, and then you keep taking it and smelling it and putting it back behind your ear. And then you keep smelling it. But that's kind of the first thing you will smell when you come to Tahiti. So... Um, that was definitely that left a very um, strong impression on me and um, also the importance of that flower over there. You know, they do these uh, lays um, um, and, and, and even crowns made of tiare flowers yeah. that you wear on your head on special occasions. So it's definitely a, a flower that it's, it stands, for me, it stands for Tahiti. That's beautiful. I'm curious too, as a perfumer, I'm sure the way that you walk through the world and you perceive the world is different than the average person. Like when you smell scents on the street, in your mind, are you trying to like break down the molecules or like thinking about how you could re recreate it or what you're smelling a combination of? Definitely. I mean, I, uh, it's, I have to say it's as a, for me, it's impossible to turn off my nose. Right. It's, 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 it's always on. Right. And, and you have to get used to that. Um, but it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I'll definitely be sensitive to good smells and bad smells. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I, I, I can sometimes somewhat even appreciate a bad smell, you know, mm -hmm. it's um, and um, you get inspired sometimes because you smell something or you smell a fragrance or you smell a scent that, you know, just evokes something to you. Um, definitely there's always a little bit of analysis going on where you kind of try to break down the notes. Mm -hmm. But I also always try to maintain the ability to look at something as a whole, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. because it's as a perfumer, you have to kind of have 
both because you have to be analytical because you're working on the formula. You have to know how every ingredient reacts within that formula. Mm -hmm. But then you also have to be able to look at a fragrance as a whole and uh, to, to understand what it means for somebody who's wearing it mm -hmm. or um, living with it and uh, what it means emotionally or even sometimes technically, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of performance, etc. Yeah, I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, which is that regardless of whether the inspiration is coming that day, that you're constantly creating as a perfumer. And I think that this can be applied to so many artistic professions and endeavors of, you know, the best writers write every day. And sometimes they're writing bad things, but every day they're writing. And as a perfumer, I'm sure there are hundreds of mods that you make for, or thousands, for certain projects that don't end up being the final one. Do you ever have things in your back pocket or things that you're just like, this will be good for some project someday, I know it? I, I love that question because it does really somewhat reflect our lives. And, and uh, I think uh, a perfumer that will say that every, every trial and everything they create every single day smells good or is great, I think they would be lying, and right. and and it is true that you know there's uh, we sometimes do hundreds, sometimes thousands of modifications on a fragrance to really get to a point where we think, all right, we are we we have something here. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, going back to those moments where you may be a little bit less inspired um, uh, or you have less ideas, you will maybe do work that doesn't really. Um, you don't really progress until you have this one idea which makes a huge difference. And I, I believe very much in that. And I'm also training, uh, you know, younger perfumers. And that's the one thing I always like to tell them is like, you know, or, or where they always I challenge them is what's, what's your idea? You know, where what is the idea? What are you trying to do? What are you going after? Mm -hmm. And I fear that... Um, as a perfumer, you really have to always ask yourself, you know, what I'm going after and, and what I'm trying to do and what is the idea and to stick to that idea. And then I think you can do something um, very beautiful and very powerful. But if you don't, you might be circle going around in circles without really making progress. Right. There has to be an objective and a clear sort of goal of what you're working That's towards. Yes. So if you were to bottle the... All of the perfect scent for you, which I'm sure you've done many times, but if you were making the perfect Frank vocal scent, it was everything you wanted to smell and nothing you didn't, what would it have in it? Um, well, I have to say definitely some woods, you know, probably yeah. some musk as Got well. The woods and the musk. Uh, something a little bit creamy, also something fresh, maybe something a little bit wet. Um, and... Um, it could be a little bit of a floral sea, but not like flowery, you know. Mm -hmm. but Just like a little yeah. subtle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But more this kind of second skin type of scent with mm -hmm. some level of freshness, you know. That's kind of what I like to wear mm -hmm. most. Beautiful. And what's your take on mixing um, synthetics and, and naturals in fragrance? Well, great question. And um, I'm definitely one of those... Um, I like to, um, I kind of like to, um, how do you say, talk about coexistence mm -hmm. and, you know, how coexist they have this logo for, for religion, you mm -hmm. know, like there's, you know, there's all kinds of religions out there right. and they call all kinds of beliefs and they can all coexist. Mm -hmm. For me with naturals and, and molecules, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
we use them and they are useful for, for very different reasons. And uh, we like to use them together. I love to work with both because um, they are equally important to us in our creation. And uh, of course, one thing we should never forget is, is sustainability these days. That is also equally, you know, very, very important. Understanding that naturals, if we all were to use only naturals, you know, that nature would be exhausted right. uh, within a week. So we need also molecules. We need biotech uh, ingredients. And, um, but I think primarily beyond that, it's really the role they play in the fragrance. And again, going to my uh, analogy with the, let's say the painting or, or, you know, I like to explain molecules as, um, as being sort of a, a fine line being drawn versus a large, uh, paintbrush being used for a natural. So, um, I think the molecules, a lot of times they are more linear, so they're more singular in their smell mm -hmm. versus naturals being actually, um, for example, a rose is composed of 150 molecules or something. Uh, it's a very complex scent. Mm -hmm. So we use them, the naturals probably a little bit more for their complexity mm -hmm. and the molecules a little bit more for their precision. Interesting. And um, another way also how we use molecules, if we don't want every piece of that rose or that jasmine, but we're just looking for the fruity piece in the jasmine or the enmalic piece or the, um, the spicy piece in the rose, we can, with molecules, we can actually just very precisely, um, let's say, draw a very fine line of one facet of that rose rather than bringing the whole rose. That's such an interesting way to look at synthetics mm -hmm. versus naturals of like the precision versus the yeah. broad strokes. I love that analogy. Okay, this is my final question before we get to the last segment of the show, which is rapid fire. And this is just a personal question that I've been wondering, but I feel like you might be the person to provide the answer. When an ingredient, be it synthetic or natural, is deemed unsafe by IFRA, what should people do if they already had a fragrance with that? Like, how unsafe is it if you had the old formulation? Yeah, okay, tough question, but very legitimate question. Um, let's put it like that. Um, what what IFRA does, and, and uh, it's it's a very useful, um, you know, organization that is so because we in perfumer we are sort of self-regulated mm -hmm. so i mean it's all we are all members of ifra and we regulate our our industry and and the ingredients that we use in our industry um and what they do it's it's more forward looking in terms of legislation that means that um they try to and there's constantly new research studies coming out so um and uh, I would say what, everything we're using today, it's safe. It's deemed safe. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody listening, you heard that, yes, right? Yes, we all all the ingredients that we use in our fragrances are are safe, and and they were tested in a way um, that that we know they won't be harmful. Mm -hmm. Now, there are sometimes new studies coming up that see that find out that. Actually, in the long run, one ingredient could be somewhat uh, creating a risk or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, in 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 uh, if you were like overexposed to it, right. you know, 
It's also a matter of how much you have of one ingredient, one formula, or whether you are like exposed to the pure ingredient because you're wrapped in it, uh, right. you know, yeah, 24 exactly. hours, uh, right. seven days a week. So you like bathe in it. Exactly. You're yeah. bathing in it. Yeah. So which we're not. Um, so um, I would say I, there's no life threatening risk wearing a fragrance today for sure. But we it. try to optimize our palette and based on new studies, you know, sometimes something that we thought was like totally harmless could be a risk for some people or some mm-hmm. um, create some type of allergy or anything like that if you were overexposed to it right. again. Um, it's really erring on the side of caution, it seems. Exactly. Right. It's extremely overcautious right. the way we look at the ingredients that we use. But mm-hmm. um, I want to believe that none of them will kill you <laughs> if you I wear mean, them. There's so that's well, I mean, the whole genre of people, which this is another story, but people saying old lady perfume, and I'm putting that in air quotes. If the perfume was killing them, they wouldn't, in theory, become old ladies. That's very I true. I rest my case. I, I like that way of looking at it. Yeah. So, and I'm uh, I'm sure you're true about that. Yeah, Emma, that's, yes. yeah. Uh, that's my knowledge that yes, I can impart yes. on this conversation. Um, Frank, we have one final segment of the show. It is rapid fire scent association. Mm, what's that smell? I will throw out people, emotions, places, whatever. You tell me the first smell that comes to mind, and you can interpret that. It could be a perfume, a note, an emotion, whatever. Are you ready to play? I am. What's that smell? Okay. Frank, what is the smell of your childhood home? It's green. It's it's like more nature. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in a little village, so I think it's Aww. like the, the, the outdoors, and I was playing outside as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't playing video games back then, so it's like I was out there. I was oh. out there, yeah. Okay. It's nature. Nature. And then I know you were in Paris as a teenager. What was the smell of your teenage years? Oh, definitely very fragrant. I mean, like perfume. That was like perfume. And it was the 80s, so imagine. It was a very loud, opulent, uh, screaming loud fragrances. So it was, yeah, very fragrant, very perfumey. Mm. What is the smell of your family? Uh, it's, it's comfort. It's a smell of comfort. Guys, it's Emma, and tragically, and I mean tragically, something happened to the last literally 30 seconds of this interview, so you will just have to imagine the rest of Frank's What's That Smell answers. Or perhaps we will need to bring him on for a part two and a much-needed completion of What's That Smell. Frank was so generous to give his time and candor, and I will say that this was truly a personal highlight of Perfume Room. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Frank, thank you again, and to everyone listening, have a wonderful day. Perfume Room is edited by Wyatt Peake, music is by Max Vernon, and illustrations are by Israel Rodriguez.